Well, for those of you who are just joining us, we're now in our third week in a series, a teaching series called Grow. And we're spending some time asking the question, what do we need to do to grow in this life, to flourish, to find the joy we're looking for and the meaning and the purpose uh, and, the, and the hope? Well, how do we find that life that we're looking for? And we determined a few weeks ago when we opened the Bible that the Bible prescribes the way to do that. And that is by leaning your whole life or rooting your whole life in the person of God. And now the Bible doesn't just put that in abstract terms, but it actually shows us what that means. And it breaks it down like this. The way unto life and the way to live, as the Bible says, is that we, be, we learn how to love God with all of our heart. So it's intimacy. We talked about that last week. With all of our strength, it's what we do and how we act. And with all of our mind, with what we know and how we think. And I want to talk about that today with the mind. Last week we established this, that if you don't have a heart level love and encounter for God, you are wasting your time because the heart is the fuel. It's the, it's the, it's the power center. It's that place of connection with God where you actually find the source of life that is God, his presence. But today, if you don't have this as one of the components, you will not grow. If you do not learn how to love God with your mind, your whole life will be out of order. Here's something I know to be true about your mind. Your mind is not something you think of that often. It's not that often that you go through life thinking about how you think, do you? We don't often think about how we think. However, our mind is the very thing that controls our entire life. How you think and your mind has the capacity to control what you perceive, how you uh, perceive information, how you receive information, and then thus it, it actually frames in your life experience. It determines how you feel about the information that comes in. It determines your choices you make on the outside and the choices that you make in your life. Your mind is the framework by which you operate and you are hemmed in and you are locked in. Your life is the product of the way you think, and that is a fact. Your mind is more powerful than you realize a lot of the time. Did you know your mind has the capacity to affect your body? Not just in that it triggers, to, it triggers your body to do what you want it to do. I'm moving my arms and talking because my brain is triggering that to happen. But beyond that, your mind actually has the capacity to run ahead of you and trick your body. Uh, for, for example, have you seen those things online, or they, they, they're predate online, but those mind teasers and a picture that makes your, makes your eyes messed up, or it, it causes your brain to think about something that the rest of your body is not reacting to. For example, let's bring this up. I want to see if we can all say this at the same time. Uh, the triangle, let's bring up the Paris one. Okay, let's read this at the same time. It says, Paris in the, yeah, Paris in the spring, or does it? No, it doesn't. It says Paris in the, the spring. But your brain predetermined to see it just says Paris in the spring. Your mind had already made that decision that that says Paris in the spring. There aren't two thes there. And thus it just proves that your mind has the capacity to run ahead and dictate what you do. There's all kinds of them. You've probably seen the one with the old lady, or is she an old lady, or is she a beautiful, beautiful woman? Do we have that picture? You can put that up there. There's the old lady or the beautiful woman. Anybody see a beautiful woman? Anybody see the old lady? They're both there. There's the one that's the rabbit and the duck. You've probably seen that one. I don't know if we have that or not, guys. The, the next one, they're like, they're looking at it. I don't see a rabbit. Rabbit and the duck. Do you see the rabbit? Do you see the duck? 
Yeah, see, your mind is going to go where it wants to go, and you have to actually teach it to go. My point is this. Your mind has the capacity to control what you perceive and how you perceive the world around you. It has the capacity to, to affect how you feel. It controls your emotions. It controls your experience. Your mind, your understanding, here's, the, here's something you need to know about it. It's not objective. It's not objective. It is the product of your worldview. Your mind is, your, your, your life experience is the product of your worldview. What's a worldview? The world, your worldview is essentially the lens by which you look at everything. You've got it on right now. Every one of us has a worldview, whether it's conscious or unconscious. A worldview is the framework from which we view reality and make sense of the world. It's the language that we understand. It's the way that we, we understand and perceive things that come in at us. It's the framework by which we operate. Basically, you have to understand this about your worldview. You right now have a set of presuppositions that you are currently operating in. You're born with some. Some are developed in the product of your culture. If you were born in the eastern part of the world, a lot of the time your, your presuppositions lean to experience. You, you base a lot of what you believe off of experience. If you were born in our part of the world, it's often rationalistic and reductive that, that you A plus B equals C and you operate on that framework. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, you have a worldview, a mental framework, a lens in which you look through to interact with the world. You are looking through it right now. Your experience in this life is largely the byproduct of how you see the world. Your worldview frames in your experience and how you understand it. Better said, here it is, how you think has the power to dictate how you live. And so when we talk about this life and this Christian life, when we talk about how to flourish in life, the Bible actually prescribes that the way to come unto life is actually to change how you think and to bring it into alignment with God. Did you know that those of us who are Christians, we believe that, that there's an enemy, we believe that there's a Satan, there's a devil, and did you know where he's targeting you? He's not targeting your habits. He's not targeting your relationships. He's targeting how you think. That the battle for your life and the battle for your flourishing happens right between your ears. So you can't change all the time your external circumstances, but God actually wants to give you the power to see it differently, to perceive it differently, and to think about it differently. So the Bible tells us that we have to actually change the way we think. It wants you to think about how you think and reform it and reshape it and redefine it in the reality of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. Romans 12, 2. It's a famous, famous passage in the Bible. Paul's talking to some real Christians and he says this. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. What's he mean? Don't, we're, we're different. As Christians, we're different. We're going to get into that next week. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by trying really, really hard. Doesn't say that, does it? Be transformed by having great willpower and self-control. Doesn't say that. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed, the NLT says, by changing the way you think. That the way you think has the power to dictate how you react and act. And that everything you do in this life is the product of how you see and perceive information and how you react to it. And so the Bible tells us and, and Jesus teaches us that we actually have to reshape and retrain how we think. And here's, here's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of Christians. 
a lot of us come to church and we understand the whole faith element and we believe there is a God and I believe in him now, but we miss the fact that believing in God is not the end, that in fact what it means to follow Jesus is a complete reorientation and re-education of everything. That following Jesus actually means that I'm not just believing in some deity, but I'm believing in a God who is present and who is going to reshape and redefine how I see everything, how I perceive information, and how I react to it. That you know that Jesus, where he wants to get, as bad as he wants to get in your heart, he wants to get in your head. And he wants to shape and reform how we think so that we can live the life that brings life. That's what he means by changing the way you think. And there's a lot of Christians, like uh, Pastor Craig Groeschel, he's the, he's the pastor of the largest church in North America, about 90,000 people. And he says this, there's a lot of people that come to church every weekend who are practical atheists. They believe in God, but practically and pragmatically, they've not actually taken on God's way of seeing the world and living life. So they come, they come to church, they'll hear a sermon, they'll sing the songs, they'll think about God, but they won't allow God to change how they think about life. And so what we need to learn as Christians is we need to learn how to allow God to shape how we think. We need to start thinking about how we think and not just thinking about God, but thinking with God. And that's a different thing, isn't it? There's this Jewish scholar named Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he said this, it just, just nails it. He says, it seems puzzling to me how greatly attached to the Bible some people seem to be, and yet how much like pagans they live. The great challenge to those of us who wish to take the Bible seriously is to let it teach us our own essential, its own essential categories and then for us to think with them, not just about them. And it's very easy, isn't it, to come and hear a sermon and think about it. Hmm, good. I've heard this lots. Good talk, pastor. That's not what God's after. God's after you hearing the word and allowing it to reshape how you think. We need to learn how to transform how we think. And so when the Bible tells us, when, when the man comes to Jesus and says, Master, how do we find life? One of the primary ways we find life is by changing how we think. It's by actually reshaping and reorienting ourselves in the world, by reframing our worldview into a biblical one. We talked about it in the first week, that being a Christian requires an education, that you actually have to reframe your worldview according to what this says, that you become subservient to how God says things are and that becomes the lens by which you live, move, and operate. It needs to overtake you. It needs to overshadow every part of your life and it becomes the very glasses by which you look at the world. You need to get in the word. You need to educate yourself with the world. You need to memorize the word. This is what the Jews believed. We talked about it in the first week. We talked about, the, anybody remember the Shema? We talked about it in week one. Uh-oh, no one remembers it. Okay, go back. But the Shema was that prayer, and that's what Jesus was quoting when he answered the guy who was asking about life. The Shema says this, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he gets into the worldview. Look at this. This is the commandment from God. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them to your forehead, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What is it saying? 
It's saying, let the truth of God reframe every part of your life. Every part of your life now becomes underneath the authority of the truth of God. It becomes the lens by which you live. It's the conversation beginning. It's the conversation ending. It's the way you bring up your kids. It's the way you perceive your boss. It's the way that you think about shopping. It's the way you watch the fight. It's the, it's the way you look at everything is through the lens of the word of God. That becomes, that's what it means to love God with your mind. Essentially means this. It is to render your intellect over to God and what his word says. Loving God with my mind means I give God the right to define reality for me. I don't allow my culture to define reality. I don't allow my experience to define reality. I don't allow my doubts or my fears to define reality. I don't allow my relationships to define reality. I don't let politicians define reality. I don't let my backstory define my reality. I don't let my cravings or inclinations define reality. I only let what God says about me, about the world, about the world I live in, about my family, about my relationships, about my job, about my cravings, about my inclinations. It's his word that I see everything. That's what it means to love God with your mind. And so as believers, the invitation to life happens when you learn to, to think not just about God, but think with God, to render over your intellect to God. It's essentially, let me, let me put a term out there. It's putting on gospel glasses in this world. It's putting on the reality of Christ, that that's the lens through which I see everything. And when information comes at me, a circumstance, a season, a someone, a something, I am receiving it through the lens of the crucified and risen Savior. I'm seeing it through the blood of Jesus. I'm seeing it through the wisdom of Jesus. I'm seeing everything through Christ. That's what it means to love God with your mind. Now, here's the trick. That's easier said than done. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah, I mean, there's some big things that come at us and can almost knock the glasses right off of our face, can it? Some seasons and some circumstances. And so what the Bible tells us, it actually gives us the way to do this. If you have your Bible, I told you to, to turn there, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. This is the one verse I want to look at this week. This is the one verse you can memorize. I want you to memorize this verse. This will be the verse of the week. We'll put it up on social media and you can... Post it on your wall or whatever you want. But you need to memorize this verse. And it says this. And this is how practically, and I talk conceptually, this is how we practically learn to love God with our minds. Look at what it says. This is Paul speaking. And he says this. We need to demolish arguments and every pretension, every false thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Let's just pause there for one second. He's saying that there are going to be thoughts in this world that try to come between you and God. They try to complicate your faith. They try to distort reality and pull your focus from the reality of God in through its lens. And so the trick, he says, is we have to demolish those thoughts and by taking them captive, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. Now, that is such a beautiful and powerful statement. I want to break that down. Like, pragmatically, what does it look like for you to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? Now, the word captive in there is a Greek word that I just cannot pronounce. It requires copious amounts of throat spit, and I'm just not going there. 
But the word essentially means, when it says captive, it means to not just control and not just lock down, but it actually has this descriptor in it that it means to lead away. So it means to bind up, but not just bind up and let it stay, but it's to bind the thought up and to remove it from your headspace so that you allow the reality of Jesus to continue to fill your headspace. That's what it means to take thoughts captive. It's identifying a thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of God and binding it up because God gives you that authority. You don't have to come into order with that. Binding it up, removing it out, and letting God be God in your head. That's what it means to take thoughts captive. And I want to just, I want to, I want to play this out. We're going to have fun today in church. I believe church should be enjoyed, not endured. So we're going to have fun. And I want to just show what does this look like practically? Let's pretend that this stage is, is our collective brain. And let's pretend that as we go through life, there will be thoughts that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. Now, just for fun, I'm going to pick somebody at random. Everyone's nervous. I saw somebody come in. I need your help. Wayne Robertson, would you help me? Ah, you're on vacation and everything. Come on, my friend. This is Wayne Robertson. He's the pastor at Holton Wesleyan, and he's huge. I, would, I hope you wouldn't do this to me if I was at your church on a Sunday that I was off, but come on up. This is Wayne, but for, for the purposes of our message, you would make a great why. Wayne is the question Why? Why is the thought that often comes up between me and God? I don't know about you, but this question why has this tendency to raise itself up between my mind and how I think about God. Has anybody ever experienced that? I find why to be enormous, imposing, strong, and demanding. Wayne, you were perfect for this. Just saying. Just saying. Yeah, why? But why, why is a bully? He dominates you, doesn't he? Why does it have to be this way? Why can't I get a break? Why did God say thou shalt not? Why, did I, why was I born this way? Why can't we get one of those? When, why can't this happen? Why can't that? Anybody ever ask the question why? Why loves to draw God down and cause God to give you a reason? Why wants to actually become God in your mind? And why wants to dominate this space in your head? Why wants God to give him an answer? And so the way that we deal with the whys in our life, God actually gives us some equipment to bind them up. There are two words. I don't know if these are going to fit your, your wrist. Why? Oh, my goodness. Let's just pretend. It's... Any Star Wars fans? I'm remembering Chewbacca can't get them on his wrists. No? No? Yeah! There are two words that you need to know when it comes to taking Y captive. You are a good-sized individual, my friend. <laughs> there it is. We're going to take Y captive, and we're going to lead him out of our space, and then I'm going to talk about and I'm going to let Wayne sit back down. But I am taking you captive, and you are getting out of my headspace. Why? And there are two words that I'm locking him up with. Thank you, Wayne. I hope you can get those off. There are two words that I am locking up the question why with. And it is the question, it is the word permission and the word mystery. 
as a believer, when it comes to how we think about God, and when it comes specifically to this question why, as he raises its head up and begins to demand answers of God, he calls your faith into question, you need to lock it down with these two words, permission and mystery. First word, permission. It means this, you have to make room in your mind for God to be God. And that when anything calls God's godness into question, you take it captive. When anything calls it down to say, God, you have to give me a reason for this. Give me a reason why that worked out this way. Give me a reason why it seems like you created the world and bad things happen to good people. Give me a reason why this person got a break but this person didn't. Give me a reason why that person got cancer and this person got healed. Give me a reason. Any time why calls God down, you have to take it captive by reminding why who God is. That God does not owe you a reason. God is sovereign. And so we take those thoughts captive by reminding ourselves and making room in our headspace for the sovereignty of God. The Bible tries that. When you, read the, when you read the Bible, the Bible tries to expand how you think when you think about God. What we want to do is we want to create God in our own image. We want God to operate within our framework. However, the Bible over and over, when it paints a picture of God, it bursts all the categories. And it causes us to humble ourselves at the feet of God and say, you're God, I'm not, and there are things in this world that I'm just not going to understand. You have to make room in your mind, first and foremost. When it comes to loving him with your mind, it's saying, God, you have permission in my mind to be God. And although as bad as I want to know why this is that way, and why this happened to me, and why I had to go through that. At the end of the day, I don't demand an answer. I'd love one, but you're God. And you get to be God in my mind. The Bible wants you to open the space up in your head to allow God ultimate permission and authority. He sits on the throne, not your sense of entitlement, not your demand for an answer. God is God. You're not. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him. We need to get, like, Jesus is my buddy out of our head once in a while. I know there's that intimacy thing we talked about last week. But before Jesus is your friend, he's Lord. He's God Almighty, sovereign. Like, the whole Old Testament puts the fear of God in your head. The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you start to process everything, start with a holy, reverent fear that God, your God, and how dare I call you into question. There's this term that my father passed on to me, and I have since passed on to my kids. I'm pretty sure my father's father passed it on to him. It's a generational rite of passage. And when any time one of the kids would come to the, one of the fathers, and we'd come and we'd ask this question, but why? That's this great phrase. It goes like this. Because I said so. <laughs> Anybody ever hear that one? Yeah, because I said, because I'm dad, and I have my reasons. But at the end of the day, I'm the dad, you're the kid, you only get to ask me so much, and I don't owe you anything. This is my house, that's my room you live in, that's my bed you're using, so you best take your questions and go somewhere else. Anybody else? Yeah, it's fine. It, it feels good being on the other side of that, just saying, but, but there's a level of childlike humility we have to have when it comes to how we engage God. 
You, you know what? Like, God wants you to come to him as father. But the picture the Bible paints about a father-son relationship is a position of honor that, and, and we can't let, frankly, how our culture does fathering and sonning define how we should engage God the Father. There, do, you know, do you know, I don't know why I laughed at this, this isn't funny, it's just wild. The Old Testament actually, like the law says you can stone to death a person who dishonors their parents. Why? Because there is a level of reverent fear and authority that a son has to give a father. And the same goes for our relationship with God. That at the beginning and the end of the day, for all the, what, all the whys in our, in our world, we have to, at the end of the day, say, well, because God said so. And you know what I've found in my life? I found that to be very freeing. I went through a season in my early 20s where I was just demanding answers of everything. And I found I whittled my world down to basically nothing. And when I had a crisis of faith where I decided, you know what, I'm just going to trust the Father. I'm going to submit myself to him. And I'm just going to take him at his word. I found that to be so freeing and life-giving. That's what the old song means, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Just trust him. Let God be God. I give him permission, and I make room for mystery. Here's an awesome phrase, and I want you to repeat this after me. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know that there's, there's so many things in this life that you just aren't gonna know, especially when it comes to faith. You have to make room in your mind. Listen, mystery and unanswered questions do not mean there is no God. On the contrary, once you come into faith, I actually find the more I don't know causes me to humble myself all the more to say, God, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, your ways are higher than my ways. I don't understand and I don't need to know. But if you're, if you're not humbled before God, that's the most frustrating thing. Why? Because why hates that? Why hates that simple childlike humility that says, God, I don't need to know everything. And I'm okay with there being unanswered questions in my mind. I trust you. Why can't stand that? I had a dialogue with someone really close to me a few weeks ago who's still searching the whole faith thing. And he's trying, he's trying to enter in head first. And he's basically demanding faith to give him the answers that will satisfy his questions. And I keep telling him, it's not going to happen. That God actually designed the way to come into him. He, he, he actually confounds the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. Why? To humble you into being like a child so that you can come to him in the right posture. No one comes into the kingdom by saying, I figured out all the questions and now I get it. Why? Because then you think you're on the same level as God. See, the way we begin to take our thoughts captive is by giving God permission. You, some of us, you've got great questions, and maybe they're even painful questions, and questions that, you've, that are, have been birthed out of hard seasons. There's a level of resignation you have to find in your faith that just says, God, I would love an answer for this, but you get to be God. You get to be God. That's the first thought. Second thought is this. There's the thought why, but then there's the thought how. Micah Peterson, would you give me a hand? You're looking dapper today, and I saw your glasses. You'll be a perfect how. Come on up, my friend. This is my friend Micah, so I figured that would be safe. This is unscripted, by the way, correct? I did not, I did not ask you before this. Micah is super smart. You look, you look smart, even. And Micah has amazing ideas, and he has an inquisitive mind. But Micah, you're, this, this works, actually. Micah, you're going to be the question how. 
That's the question that often gets between me and God, is, is this question, how is someone who thinks and obsesses about limits and, and statistics, he's somebody that's looking at the odds, he's someone that's trying to figure out how this is all going to work, how, how is this all going to play out, how is a question that often gets between me and God, I don't know about you, anybody else find that this, this question how, see how is obsessed with the way things work or are going to work? He wants to know the way that this is going to roll out. And so how will obsess about, okay, how are we going to save our marriage? Okay, how on earth am I going to reach my kid? How on earth are they going to come back to God? How, how are we going to pay for that? How loves that question. <laughs> how obsesses about the way things work and how they're going to work out. And the way that we take how captive is with two, two words, the word provision and the word mastery. I'm going I'm to lock you up, Micah. Oh, you want to go? Okay. <laughs> it's getting serious. <laughs> it is not that. It's, it isn't quite this simple, actually. How's, how can be an evasive little bugger? But, uh, sorry to all you English people. I think that's actually a bad word. But we're going to take you captive with these two words, provision and mastery. And you can sit down, my friend. I don't need you in my mind. <laughs> Provision and mastery. You see, how looks at the way things work and how on earth it's going to work. And so he really struggles with faith and the space for faith in his mind. And so there are two main areas. One is he wants to know the, the way to the why. He wants to understand when it comes to the way that God commands things to be, the way that Jesus shows us how to live, he wants to know how that's supposed to work. And oftentimes when it comes to the walk of faith, some of the things that Jesus tells you to do seem downright crazy, doesn't it? Like turn the other cheek, love your enemies, give and it will be given to you. That, how does that work? How is that supposed to work? That defies logic. That defies reason. That doesn't work in my mind. How struggles with that? And so the way we bind up those questions about how it works is by allowing ourselves to remind our minds that Jesus isn't just good. He's not just God, but he is the master of everything. And what I mean by master or mastery is this. How often when you think of Jesus, do you think of him as smart or as an expert? That Jesus isn't just like really, really loving and really kind and really good, but he's smarter than you. And I find we often don't think about that. And then what that does is it short circuits the commandments of God because we see them as stupid. And yet Jesus came to demonstrate that actually he had mastery over everything in the known universe. In the human experience, he had mastery about how to live. He had mastery over the elements. We saw him calm the storm. We saw him raise the dead. We saw him heal the sick. He actually knew there was an intellect about Jesus where he knew all things and understood all things. His wisdom was like that that no one had ever heard or since has heard. Jesus is the master of everything. And one of the places we struggle is with the logic of some of the commandments of God. You ever find that? It's like, God, that's illogical. How on earth is it supposed to, like, you tell me, okay, I hear them talk about being radically generous at church, and yet I can hardly pay my bills, and you're telling me I'm supposed to give money to the church? How's that work? See, God defies logic. And so one of the ways that we take those thoughts captive is first and foremost by reminding ourselves that Jesus is smarter than me, that he knows. 
He knows the way. In fact, he said, I am the way. And then it goes one step beyond that, and it gets way outside of where how gets comfortable, and it's this. It's this word provision. It's that you know in the gaps and the lacks of this world, in that space of impossibility, God is able Isn't that an amazing thing? Like to to insert in your mind, you aren't hyper-rationalistic, you are hyper-faith where you believe that, you know what, there are things that are impossible for man that are not impossible for God. That, that, That me plus Jesus equals a majority. That, that in all of the areas of my life, this is why I love the, the, the miracle of the, the feeding of the 15,000. There's 5,000 men and, his, and their wives and their children. And Jesus had five loaves and two, 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 two fishes. Two fish. And he multiplied it to feed everyone until they were full. And the point is this, that Jesus actually gives us a new category for math. Jesus is the ultimate factor in every equation. So, you know what? Five loaves of bread and 15,000 hungry bellies plus Jesus equals more than enough. That your money and your expenses plus Jesus in the equation equals more than enough. That your diagnosis And your body plus Jesus equals more than enough. That Jesus is the factor that we write into every single equation of life. And there are gaps and lacks in your world that how is obsessing about. And Jesus just wants to say, let me handle it. You just trust me. I'm going to handle it. He knows and he's able. Do you believe that? So we love God with our minds in all of those areas of where we're obsessing about how's this work and how's this going to work out and how am I going to and how are we going to and how's this going to. He's able. He's able and I'm going to clear that out of my head. I don't need to know the answer. I trust him and I know he knows and I trust he's able. Some of you need to take those thoughts captive. They're getting between you and the knowledge of God, and you need to tear them down and remind them, my God is exceedingly, abundantly able to do more than I ask or even imagine. That's how we take him captive. Practically speaking, loving God with my mind means taking the limits off what is possible. God's power defines my expectations. Not my understanding, Not my history, not popular opinion. God is a miracle-working God who still enters into space and time and defies logic and defies the laws of nature and defies the laws of science or just proves that we haven't learned as much as we thought we've learned. God is able to reach into space and time and adjust and affect everything. We take the hows captive by reminding ourselves that Jesus is able and he knows, he knows. Final thought is this, final, final imposter, final question that will come to mind. Uh, Pastor Dan, would you help me? Yep. This, one is, this one is the worst, by the way. This one is the worst of them all, I find. Like you're this is, before I, I, am, I am not even letting you in my space without these on. <laughs> this is the question when. When is obsessed with the future? 
Wen is obsessed with tomorrow. He's obsessed with when is this going to happen and when's the other shoe going to fall and when is Trump and Un going to go at it and when's this going to happen and when and when and when and he cannot get his head in the present. That when raises itself up between you and the knowledge of God and wants you to focus on what may or may not happen tomorrow. When is this pest that never, he, he keeps you up at night. Anybody ever notice that? He causes you to toss and turn and play out all the possibilities of, well, what if, maybe this will happen. See, when has this follow-up question, what if? When's a scaredy cat? When's afraid of everything? <laughs> not you, Dan, you're one of my heroes, but just, just, just go with oh, it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when is obsessed with tomorrow? And he just wants you to toss and turn and to occupy the space in your mind. And so there's going to be a way that we take when captive. And it's, it's by, again, two more words, perspective and my destiny. Perspective and my destiny. The way we take when captive and we lead him out of the space of our mind. Thank you, when. Don't come back. When we, when we take him out of the space of our mind, we do it by locking him down with two things that we have to take into mind to lead him away. One is this, that there is a bigger story at play here. You know what? When tries to make you think that I, I'm the one who's thinking forward and I'm the one who's focused on the future. Actually, the Bible says that, that when is actually focused too small, not big enough. That God actually calls us when it comes to our minds and loving him with our minds. He actually wants us to take it farther than tomorrow, farther than next month, farther than next year, farther than 10 years from now. He wants us to think of like the thousand year track, the 10,000 year track. And he wants that reality to inform our lives. That 10,000 years becomes the lens through which I look. All of a sudden, today and tomorrow don't seem that weighty when I'm looking at the 10,000-year plan. And then, that, so the Bible invites you to take that on as your perspective. Colossians 3.2 says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. You see, when's trying to get your feet on the ground. But the Bible tells us, take your soul, take your spirit up. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remind yourself that in heaven, Jesus isn't pacing the floors of heaven over your problem. He's not pacing over cancer. He's not pacing over your wayward child. He cares, but he ain't worried about it. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He's sovereign and in control. The Bible says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now here it is, verse two. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. Take it up into the eternal scope. You have to remind yourself that there's a bigger story. I wanna I want draw something for you because I'm such a good artist. I told you I'd do this uh, after week one, and I, I, I thought this would help. When it comes to like life and getting a perspective on the scope of the world you live in, the Bible, it can be misleading. When The Bible's not misleading anything, but if you look at it the wrong way, it can be. If you look at this book, this last little part, the last little book and the first three chapters are 
open-ended in the expanse of time. And then all of this content in between represents thousands of years, but when it comes to the grand scheme of things, it really skews it. And so it's sometimes helpful to see the story that we're part of. So I want to illustrate something for you today. And I want to show you the story and the scope of which your now is. The Bible tells us, let's make this work here. Can you see that? They'll get it. They'll get it. Those guys are awesome. Tell me when you got it. Get out of there. So the Bible gives us this kind of way that we can see how things roll out. It talks at the start, like in Genesis 1, about like eternity. It's called eternity past. And that says that in the beginning... There was God. It says that the earth was formless and void. It says there was nothing, and then God spoke, and all things began. That there was something, that God was outside of time and eternity passed. And then in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about creation and how God spoke, and boom, life began. Some of you Big Bang people, there it is. And so this timeline began. I'm really sorry about my penmanship, but I hope this helps somebody. This timeline begins, let's call this the Old Testament. And in the beginning, we find heaven and earth. God created the heavens and the earth. We find God and man in perfect relationship in the garden. Anybody remember that story? Anybody go to Sunday school? If you haven't, we're awesome. We're glad you're here. In fact, we're going to do some things this fall, have some courses that you can learn some of this stuff, and we can help you learn the Bible. But it begins this way, that there was nothing, and then boom, God created everything in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Then in Genesis 3, and we don't know how much time there was in between here. Some of you people who you read Genesis, uh, the story, the creation story, and you say, well, there's the first day and the second day. There were six 24-hour days I don't know. The word day in the Hebrew is the word aeon, which means an expanse of time. And they didn't even create the sun and the moon. God didn't even create the sun and the moon by which we get 24 hours until day three. So go figure. Anyway, we don't really know how much time there was in there. So insert who knows. But we find in Genesis 3 that sin and Satan enter the story and complicate everything. Read that part? Things are bad because of that. And then if you scroll forward, by Genesis chapter 6, it says that the world had so degraded and destroyed and eroded because of sin that God looked upon everything and saw that every heart of every man was wicked, and so he judges the world. That's the story of Noah's Ark. Judgment. And God did it by flood. It's not the cutest story. We paint paint the murals of like all the animals. Like it's not that cute. It's judgment. Judgment. And then we find in Genesis chapter 9, we find a one world government where they create the Table of Babel and all the humans are working together to try to get to God and, become, and elevate themselves. And we find this one world government happen. God reestablishes a new government. He calls this man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to separate you and I'm going to make a nation with 12 tribes And this is going to be my nation, and we are going to redeem everything through this. And so God calls Abraham, and this runs all the way and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We don't have time to get into the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, but essentially we find the fulfillment of the whole Bible and the climax of the whole Bible is in the person and work of Jesus on the cross and rising again. And then it flips over into the New Testament, Stay with me on the storyline. 
And we find Jesus does what? He grabs his disciples after he rises from the dead. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all of the earth. What's he saying? He's reestablishing God's governance. 12 disciples, a new nation. And then what the Bible says, if you flip forward to Revelation, what's going to happen next is that there will be a one world government that Revelation says God will eventually judge the world one final time through fire. And then we find out that the Bible says that sin and Satan will exit. Whoop! Yay! (laughs) And then we find the end of our story, the end of a new beginning, where we find heaven and earth reconciled, God and man, forever and ever, in the Garden City, in the New Jerusalem. That's what Revelation 21 is talking about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And God's dwelling place was with man. And he wiped away every tear from their eye. And there was no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. He was with them and they will be his people forever and ever and ever and ever. Church, that's the story you live in. And it's so important when that when and that obsession about tomorrow rises up in your mind. It's so important that you scale back, you remove the temporal, and you get into the eternal. And you remind yourself in the grand scheme of things, you are here. (laughs) And I don't know what's going to happen in between here and there. I don't know what's going to happen in your lifetime. But here's the amazing news when it comes to taking the thoughts captive I know how the story ends. And I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't, I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know when God's going to return. I don't know when revelation and all that stuff's going to kick into high gear. I don't know when this is going to happen. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know when. I don't know what. All I know is this. I know in whom I have believed, and I know how this is all going to end. Why? Because I spoil the story all the time. Anytime I get worried, anytime I get scared, I just flip to the end of the book and remind myself, oh, yeah, I know how the story ends. We win. Jesus wins, death loses, sin loses, and we stand forever full, whole, healthy, flourishing, alive with Jesus forever and ever and ever. So there might be pain right now, but it's temporal. There might be sickness right now, but it's temporary. There might be loss right now, but it's temporary. My gain will fully outweigh anything I lose in this life. And that's the hope we have. That's how we take our thoughts captive is we scale back and remind ourselves, this is the story I'm part of. This is God's story. This is God's world. And I am a small part of a much bigger story. And I know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so I'm not going to let when cloud my mind. I'm not going to let why cloud my mind. I'm not going to let how cloud my mind. I'm not going to let who. There's another one. If we had time, I'd go into there. The enemy, that question loves to come in. Who do you think you are? With every question of life, I fix my eyes on Jesus and I let him define who I am. I let him define what I think. I let him define where we're going. I let Jesus define everything and I scale back into the grand scheme of eternity and I don't fix my eyes on what is seen. I fix my eyes on what is unseen because what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. These light momentary afflictions pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus and he's working it out in you. Do you believe that today, church? Would you stand? Let's pray.
Lord, for all the questions in our minds, we just submit them to your authority today. Jesus, we just want to say that you are, you are the answer to every question in this life and in this world. For the questions that we don't have a good answer, Jesus, you're enough. For all the whys in this world, we say, Jesus, you're enough. That, that you dying on the cross and rising for us, you demonstrating that you can be trusted, we trust you. Even with our doubts, even with our fears, even with our unanswered questions, Jesus, you're the answer we need. And so today, you are the ultimate yes to every question that we have. You are yes and amen. You, every promise of God is fulfilled in you. And so God, we just give our minds to you today. We ask, Lord, you teach us as your kids to see the world as you see it, to see our circumstances as you see it, to see ourselves as you see it, to see everything as you see it, that we'd have gospel glasses on, that we'd have the mind of Christ, that we'd fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And Lord, we would look so forward to how this all ends. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for renewed minds. God, would you go with us this week? Would you help us take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? And we pray this in the name of the risen King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the beginning and the end. Amen. We love you, Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Let's sing.